0: couldn't find two people better situated to represent the best of what Humboldt County has to offer, both in terms of heart and genius, than Eric and Viviana Hollenbeck. They truly straddle the confluence of generations, having met in Old Town Eureka at a time when the mill economy was booming and hordes of young folks were making their living off the legendary redwood forests that surrounded this community on all sides. That was their beginning, but like the rest of this community, they've since evolved into something much more complex, more erudite and seasoned, that distills that raw energy of the 1960s and winnows it. That art form is perhaps best captured in their new show on Discovery+, Plus, The Craftsman. I sat down with the Hollenbecks to talk about history, identity, life on the North Coast, and why they love this region so much. I'm James Falk, and this is Crossing the Bar. This is the Crossing the Bar podcast. I'm James Folk from Key TV. This is one of our new um, online efforts to reach people through the ones and zeros rather than the broadcast tower. Um, I'm happy to be sitting with Eric and Viviana Hollenbeck from Blue Ox Millworks. If you're from Humboldt County, you know who they are. Um, They're um, famous sort of cultural icons in Humboldt County and have done a lot to preserve the history and also um, preserve a, a way of life that in a lot of ways has been lost. So I'll just start with some basic questions and we'll go from there. Um, so Eric, let's start with you. Um, you. You were raised in Humboldt County. How did you find yourself um, here as an adult in Humboldt County and how did you begin to make sort of the, um, you know, the, the legacy that you have now?
1: Um, I was actually born in Portland. Okay. And uh, we came to Humboldt County in, uh, I was in second grade. So from second grade on, um, I have uh, been in Humboldt County, never left. Um, We used to joke, Viv and I, that I've gone two places in my life, Vietnam and Disneyland. It's the only two places I ever went. (laughs)
2: But I'm working on changing that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I watched your show, and it's like I have mentioned to you before, it's exceedingly well done. They have a lot of uh, biographical information in there, so I was able to watch some of what what you've gone through and all that from the show. Uh, But one of the things that you mentioned um, is that you had a hard time in school, that you couldn't read or write, and that um, that shaped you into finding other pursuits where you did have high talents. Can you explain how you discovered those abilities or that interest?
1: I started working in the woods when I was 15, and I was too young to log, and they put me with a, uh, the uh, timber survey crew, and, uh, and I surveyed uh, cut blocks and uh, even timber access roads into the woods. And I left because they kept calling me stupid at school, telling me I was stupid, so I figured, well, hell, if I'm stupid, I may as well uh, go to work in the woods. And by the time I was 17, I was making 2 an hour, and the teachers were making 2 an hour. <laughs> I thought, you know, I can't read or spell, but I'm pretty good at math. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Greater than, less than.
1: Right? <laughs> so the beauty is that I got to live the tail end of an era that'll never happen again. I mean, we... Uh, we had a camp cook. We lived in the woods 10 days on um, jungled up in uh, uh, tents. Uh, we would pull in a, on a new job site we pulled in a, like a 30 foot trailer and that was the cook shack <coughs> And this and I'm not talking about pulling it into no trailer park or nothing just a um, <laughs> clearing in the woods yeah and that was uh, that was what we did and uh, S-
2: similar to the skid camps like right now we're in the cook shack yeah. They were cabins yep. on sleds and yep. they would move them to the new logging site. Wow! Road or no road, they'd go out there.
1: Yep, yep, and that's what we did. And it, so it was really wonderful to live that, that very tail end of an era in the same way growing up. Uh, as was a little boy here, you know. Dennis Manfreda and I built our very first boat in fourth grade and uh, got our hunting licenses when uh, uh when we were 13 back in those days you could go and take a nRA test I took it if, <laughs> and if you pass the NRA test you got to get your uh, yeah. duck, uh duck hunting license yeah. and uh, you know we were hunting this bay geez, in junior high we were hunting this bay uh rowing around this bay all over well they won't let you do that anymore now you got to have a numbers on your boat and you got to have different things and i get that there's something gained but there's also something lost and it's that freedom of a little boy um, to be a little boy and to be real honest with you in my memory if i killed four ducks in the years and years and years, of the child, <laughs> I would be stunned. I would be absolutely stunned. Yeah. We'd go out and we'd get, we get, we would get bored and we would shoot tipped in weed grass. Anything to just pull the trigger.
2: You have to be boys.
1: You gotta be boys. Yeah. We'd shoot yeah. our own decoys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, It was just the fun of Growing up and being in nature and being on the bay and all of that.
2: Yeah. Then, then when I moved up here, I, can, I grew up in L.A., was born Argentina <coughs> and raised in L.A. Mm-hmm. And um, he was logging at the time, he and his uh, three original partners had started a logging company. Mm-hmm. And so I said, "Well, I want to see. Let me come." And so I would go out with him. Well, my big thing is photography. Sure. I chronicle everything. So I have these fabulous slides of the last logging job that they did, and Eric's out there with his pipe and his ponytail and his hard hat with painted designs on it, (laughs) and I got got to be actually. She ran the cat. They, Eric's the kind of guy who says, well, here. Here's how you do this, push this, push that, don't touch that. And they needed somebody to um, man to operate the winch on the back of the cat. So he and the guys would go out and put the chokers on them, you know, the collar on the logs, and then hook on the, the big chain, what's the big chain called? Bull hook. The bull hook. And then they'd tell me, okay, get the winch going and haul those babies in. So I thought that's pretty cool it yeah. was it yeah. was exciting. The guys were not very, terribly impressed at first, but then, when they saw that I could free Eric up so he could be out there yeah. with with the trees yeah it it helped
1: and we're not talking a little cat, yeah we're talking ad eight a two u d eight that cat will not fit in this building yeah it was amazing. that cat was enormous
2: <laughs> the, the power that you feel, yeah. It was terrifying and energizing, both at the uh-huh. same time. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I'll never forget that. That was amazing.
0: I have so many questions, and it's hard to know where to go with some of the questions I have <laughs> uh, because I find it, it fascinating. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about is that you worked in these camps toward the tail end of the era, you know, of the uh, probably the logging boom or the golden logging era, yep. whatever you want to call it. Yep. Um, and there's a, uh, a stereotype, I guess, of like the logger, you know, that there's a, kind of a, an ungenerous portrait that some people hold in their minds of how these people were and how they operated. Can you give me a sense of who these people were that you were working with, the hey. older men as you're a boy trying to, you know, learn the trade?
1: Absolutely, and I'll go one step better. To go back to the very beginning, to 1850, and the Greg party coming out here, the first guys to come out here um, and they've decided to find a town here. And how's this town gonna survive? Um, well, there's timber, we could, we could log it. Only the world has never seen timber like this, ever, in history. You walk up to a tree, <clears throat> we've got a cross section over here um, inside the Redwood Shrine that's 15 feet in diameter, that cross section was cut 70 feet up the tree. Wow. 70 feet off the ground, the, tr- the tree was 15 feet in diameter. Wow. It was 30 feet in diameter at the base. So, y- you think about it. First, how are you gonna get this tree on the ground? How you, it, there ain't no uh, saws or, or technology made to even cut it down. Now let's say you magically get it on the ground. How are you going to buck it into lengths? Now you magically buck it into lengths. How are you going to move it? Now you got to move it.
0: Because this and, is a scale that's not comparable to any other logging to, operations, right? It's in it's the reinvented. world, yeah, in yeah.
1: all yeah. of history, every bit of this had to be invented. Yeah. And then you finally get it to move. Where are you going to move it to? There's never been sawmills built to handle this yeah. kind of timber, ever. Yeah. The, the idea isn't even there. These guys and gals solved every one of those problems, every problem that came up. Uh, these were brilliant, brilliant people. And the fools are the ones today not giving them credit for what they did.
0: Yeah,
1: that, 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 Those are the foolish ones, not them. Yeah. They were brilliant they were uh, problem solvers by nature and, uh, and got the job done pioneers they right. were pioneers Pioneer, right. they pioneered the, the industry the, the industry the whole industry and then all through you know World War One World War Two the boom after World War Two the world screamed for cheap building materials screamed at the top of its lungs we in this county stood up and, and supplied them. We did it.
0: Yeah.
1: We met the needs of the world. Yeah. Um, so, no, don't, don't never come down here and get my face over, uh, over whether I think loggers are, uh, have any negative connotation to them at all. Because um, <clears throat> these guys and gals were superheroes in my book.
0: How were you treated as a young man? Uh, like a greenhorn, I guess they probably called you, I mean, out in the woods, were you, uh, was it like a, <coughs> was there uh how do you call it a, uh, you know, where they initiate you into the group by oh, yeah. tarring and feathering you or whatever it would be? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, you know, the first, the first day, um, and I thought I was pretty tough. I thought I was a pretty tough 15 year old. Every 15 year old thinks they're pretty tough. By two o'clock I sat down and cried <laughs> in the middle of the trail. <laughs> By the end of the week, I was pulling my load, and by the end of two weeks, I was pulling my load and could help others. yeah, because fifteen year olds can bounce back. and um, but the the beauty for me, see i can't I can't read and I can't spell, but I've got a trap jaw memory. So these guys would uh, talk at night and tell stories. And then we go to bed, well, the next night, I knew where the story left off. <laughs> and I would ask him to start it, and I would tell him where the story left off. Yeah. So I became the darling of the crew, because they actually had an audience that was listening. Yeah. So I got all of those stories. That's and
2: amazing. You, and you care to listen. And, and you're a yeah. really good listener. The stories fascinate you, and I'm sure they responded to
1: that. The boy, I was the darling of the crew. I had to work my way into that position, but I was, I worked just as hard as they did. And-
2: uh, And then you got to collect the stories. And then I got
1: to collect the stories. The pure stories. gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and the food.
0: Yeah, how was the food?
1: We had a camp cook named Jimmy Vandencini, a little short Italian guy, couldn't weigh a hundred pounds and uh, meaner than a cat dirt fence. He would cook dinners. And I would sit down at the table and eat until I thought it was polite. And then I would go outside and I'd stand next to the door until the last guy came out. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go back inside and Jimmy would be cussing and swearing and and he'd Cleaning the table off and pushing all the leftovers down to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you can't fill up a sixteen-year-old. Well, yeah, especially no. one that's working his ass off. Hey, there Actually, is no yeah. <laughs> <for
1: that. laughs> you can fill up a sixteen-year-old a little boy. That's an impossibility. And, yeah. and didn't
2: you tell me that that loggers eat need more calories? Thank than, you, thank yeah. you,
1: Viv. Yeah. So Jimmy came down and took a tour. Um, oh. 10, 15 years ago. Oh, well, that must have been He neat. was still alive, yeah. yeah. Wow. And I asked him, how many calories were you trying to shove into us? And he told he told me between 2,500 and 3,000 calories a day. And, and we didn't have a fat guy amongst us.
0: I'm sure you didn't. No, I mean, you couldn't gain any weight
1: because you were spending no, it all. That food never even had a chance. It hit the burners and just went insta poof. <laughs> <laughs> So now you went from
0: work, working in the woods as part of another person's operation and then ultimately started your own mill, right? Is that
2: a, How did that come about? Uh, I got didn't, drafted. Didn't, didn't quite get that. He he surveyed with okay. other companies. Okay. And then he and three other partners started Blue Ox Logging and Lumber. Okay. And then evolved to be the manufacturer. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I got drafted. Um, Went to NOM um, in a combat, um, I, w- I was a combat uh, radioman in uh, a company of the 327 and we were in, in the jungle and in combat the entire tour, my entire tour, we never came out. Um, it's a full year? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then I came back, um, uh, de roast out of Oakland um, hitchhiked home, got home at uh, five o'clock <laughs> Saturday afternoon, and I went right back to work for the same company. Five o'clock Monday morning. Wow. Um, and I, so there was no uh, downtime. There's no detox time, and we didn't know nothing about shell shock back then.
0: Yeah. Do you think I, that you had PTSD from the from the war?
1: Oh, of course I did. Yeah. How could you
0: not, right?
1: uh, Yeah, I was I was 19 and. Uh, and I'd been 322 days in combat, um, so I lasted uh, two years, I think, and then had a meltdown, and uh, and quit and sold all my stuff, uh, sold my vessel, my slide sold everything, my boots, and bummed around for a year, and then uh, and then uh, four of us, my brother and. Two other guys and I decided to start a logging company, and we borrowed three hundred dollars from a multinational bank, and uh, and uh, started Blue Hawks. So that's how how it got to to. And then we logged for three years, and then uh, the logging market collapsed. And then we uh, <laughs> the bank had sold us this, this property for no money down because it was condemned to be torn down, and then. Viv and I, the partners, dissolved, and then Viv and I started uh, manufacturing here. So, how did you guys meet?
2: The classic old town bar and grill story. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, we we didn't meet on the dance floor. I worked there mm-hmm. with Lonnie's Eric's brother's girlfriend, and one day. She said, oh, we're going to get Eric down here because he's just been moping at home since his divorce, and so we're going to get him out here. I said, okay, great. And they said this was Bonnie Gould. I don't know if you remember Bonnie Gould.
0: Uh, Bonnie Gould Doc, like the famous? The the mayor of Old Town. That was her nickname. Yeah, she was
2: great. She and Nanette said that he could be 20 minutes to 2 hours late. (laughs) I <laughs> said, <So>, okay. <laughs> so they were. And um, I got them some soup because the kitchen was closed by that time. So were they time. coming in
0: after work? or was This it?
2: would have been, oh, I can't even remember if you must have been working. Yeah. You must have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you were. It must have been a weekday. Yeah. And um, I joined him for a drink afterwards and Eric invited me to dinner. And um, I kind of looked at him because I thought, I don't even know you. But Bonnie. She leans over in a stage whisper and says, say yes if he takes me too. So it was Bonnie and her boyfriend and Eric's brother and his girlfriend and Eric and I and Bob Imperial and his girlfriend. And so that was our, that was our first date.
0: Dinner party. Uh-huh.
2: And then we went to Merriman's and then, uh, and then I moved in with him six weeks later and then we got married a year and a half later.
0: So He's can I ask him to be. Yeah, well that's what kind of one I what did you what was your first impression of Eric when you saw him? Well actually
2: I had met him twice before and didn't like him.
0: Okay, why not?
2: Because yeah. he was a grumpy old bastard. <laughs> 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 I was not impressed. But in all honesty, when he met me, he thought I was a bar chick. Mm-hmm. Which I was playing the role of at the time. Sure. So it wasn't quite the right timing. I remember writing to my mom. It, we, we Our first date was February 29th and I wrote my mom and I told her in the spring a livelier iris changes on the burnished dove and I didn't <laughs> tell her the rest because mm-hmm. she knows that because yeah. the other part of it is and in the spring a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love and she knew that I'd met. Someone. My one true love. Yeah, yeah. What is that from? <laughs> Ooh, I don't even know the poet. I'll have to look that up. Or oh, I, can, I can look we can it up. Google it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but that's, that's the poem. And so we just knew there's a lot of destiny and fate involved, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm a thousand miles from LA. We weren't even going to stay here, my girlfriend and I. We were going to keep traveling north.
0: What brought you to Eureka?
2: get the hell out of LA.
0: Just to go north and get out of town? And we had
2: friends that were going to college here and they said, yeah, you can stay with us. Yeah, after spending a year and a half with my relatives in Argentina, I came back to LA and said, no, this is not a healthy way to live. For me, you know, I know a lot of other people love it, but for me, it wasn't right. And it was destiny. I mean, you know, to meet him twice and not like him and then have a third chance. It's like the guides and angels on the other side are going, come on, guys, get it together. It's <laughs> supposed to happen. Pay attention.
0: <laughs> so when did you, uh, was there a point in there that you fell in love with this area? When did you find the, uh, the passion that you seem to have for like... For this area? For this area. Eureka in particular, I hear you guys...
2: It must have, it must have been pretty early on
0: because
2: mm-hmm. I met him after I'd been here six months.
0: Okay, so pretty early.
2: Yeah, yeah. And... Like I said, photography. So, going to the beaches, going to the trees. Um, Just, I'm I'm a really big nature person, so this area was bliss. Mm -hmm. Just heaven. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty phenomenal. And let me comment about evil loggers destroying the planet. You know? We fortunately are a species that evolves. And at that point in time, the concept was, these are resources, and we need them, and that's why they're here. Sure. And now we are shifting and understanding better that we need to be respectful and think in a longer term. So it was not evil in terms of some of the ways that people think. Yeah. It was a different attitude. Sure.
0: Yeah. And, and that was pervasive. I mean,
1: And, and you, you always. Um, that's the downfall of every historian in the world. You can't take your present-day um, philosophies and try to superimpose them on yesterday and, uh, and expect to get a, 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 a correct answer. It right. won't work. Right. We were being screened at to supply the world.
2: The, the <coughs> came back from... The war. And they needed homes. They needed they homes. They needed everything, yeah. And yes, there was some hard drinking, <laughs> but... Um, Old Town was famous for a reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, the place that I lived in Old Town was an ex-house. It was a hallway with single rooms and a shared ah, yes. kitchen and bath.
0: There was a bunch of those I heard in Old yeah, Town. yeah, up through,
2: right just a few years before I moved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was um, part of life.
0: Yeah. So one of your uh not to I'm just trying to one of your passions has been to restore old milling equipment, right? For like uh restoring Victorians and that sort of thing. And if I remember correctly from an old interview a conversation we'd had, you found some in the woods, right? And you restored it and that like kind of put you in a unique position in the market?
1: It, it wasn't really a passion, it was a necessity. Okay. I'm not kidding. We started this sure. company with a $300 bank loan. Yeah. That is not a joke. <laughs> um, that was probably the richest we ever been because he gave us cash money. <laughs> I walked out of there with $300 cash in my pocket. <laughs> I had to find equipment that I could either get for free for hauling it away, or, um, or I could trade some labor for it. So I had to go after the old junk that nobody else wanted. Uh, it was not... Viv and I's intent to build a museum. That was not no. what we did on it purpose. It was
2: working equipment. But you also have to acknowledge that you're a mechanical genius. <clears throat> I understand, Even, even yeah. when he was a kid, he would take things apart. I don't know what his put-back-together rate was at that <laughs> age, but figuring out how things work was, was uh, a key part of our ability to create what we've created
1: here. Don't you think, Viv, that everybody, everybody in the world is born with a handicap. In, in my case, it's a real easy to see handicap. It's uh, uh, reading and uh, writing, but um, everybody, life has given everybody a compensator, something that they're extra good at. And for me, it's thinking mechanically. I can take a part a machine and figure out what they were trying to do with the machine, with the machine, what, how they were trying to get about this problem and how they were trying to do it so that I can put the machine back together again. Yeah.
2: Um, so that and, was
1: and that, vital. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And In and our case, that was vital, yes.
2: I didn't know what my talents were because I'm not mechanical. I suck at math. I can write and I can take pictures. Yeah. But what I brought to the table was the organizing. Okay, if we're gonna go over here, then these are the steps that we have to take, these are the people we have to talk to, here's the resources we have to figure out. And so we both learned, we made a lot of mistakes. Still are <laughs> but that was what I was able to bring to the table. But that doesn't show. You know?
0: Yeah, that's not it's the, different. That's not the product. That's the Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because like people
2: that. always say, oh, so what do you do? Do you do the roses? No, that's Eric, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how has your guys' marriage been? I mean, I don't mean to get too personal, but have you guys had a pretty good, solid relationship the whole time? Do you fight? I mean, I've been married for 25 <laughs> years myself. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done uh-huh. every uh-huh. day. And i yeah. um, yeah. trying to get a sense of where you guys are
2: with that. So I, um, our daughter, Dale, asked us about that. She's putting together... Um, a new Blue Ox arm, so to speak. It's going to be online sales. And she had us write down about us. Mm -hmm. So fundamentally, it's very humbling when someone worships you, when somebody's whole heart is into being there for you and doing everything they can to be a support. And I feel that way from Eric. I'm hoping you feel that way for Absolutely, me. Absolutely, yes, <laughs> yeah. So you you join forces, and and the power is exponential. You
1: greater than this. Some of its yeah, parts, uh, exactly.
2: Yeah, you're we, right. We work well together. We enjoy working <coughs> well together. We're not real good at playing together. <laughs> We're working on that. <laughs> But
0: it and seems like maybe some of that work is play for you guys, too. Like You, you so enjoy creative. it. It's so creative. It's
2: so creative. Yeah. 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 And, and we respect each other's um, contributions. The whole concept of um, being a human, in my opinion, is evolving. You don't stay a 5-year-old. You don't stay a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. You don't stay a 50-year-old. You just keep shifting and changing. And if you're open to listening and observing and consciously evolving, then you have the opportunity to evolve together. And then it's really cool. Yeah,
1: Yeah. well put Viv. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly, I I totally agree. You know, I said on the TV show that we're all trying to find ourselves. Who are we? Define ourselves. (laughs) You're a wordsmith, you're an interviewer, you do what you do. I'm a craftsman, I do what I do. And we we build our whole identity around that. Well, guess what? (laughs) I'm here to tell you at my age, all of a sudden out of nowhere, life throws you a curve. And that identity, I can't do the horse anymore. I spent my entire life doing the horse. I was always proud that I could work harder and longer and tougher than anybody else. That's, that's what I built my life around. Well, all of a sudden, that ain't in the cards anymore. Um, the whole damn deck change, changes out of nowhere. And then you have to find, now, who am I? So yeah. we never stop um, recreating ourselves.
2: That's a good word. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. To to
1: ourselves, we have to recreate ourselves to ourselves ourselves. ourselves. and as
2: as a mother, I was a stay-at-home mom for eight years I I was committed that was I was gonna be a wife and I was gonna be a mother That's all I had on my agenda Mm -hmm. and then they grow up and they move out.
0: Yeah,
2: and then they move away and then you're saying, "Okay, now." So fortunately, Eric and I worked together, um, so there was there was a shift for me as well, and now it's shifting again, and it's actually exciting, scary sometimes, yeah. but exciting. So
1: this whole television thing.
0: Yeah, is, tell me how that came to be, and let's get into that.
1: The uh, it is now a. Um, a new identity, a new trying to figure out a new identity. She's trying to figure out who's Vivian in the television thing. I'm trying to figure out who in the world's Eric in the television thing. And the, I truly believe that life never slams a door shut without opening some other door. Um, you, there is a path, and it ain't straight. <laughs> I can tell you that for damn sure. It's a zigzaggy starting down one trail and a rabbit trail takes off and you gotta go over the rabbit trail and now a gopher trail takes off and you're headed on the other direction and a gopher trail and you you just wandering your way through this thing. <clears throat> but if you have the inner moxie to step up to the plate and say, now I'm ready to redefine myself to myself then you're playing with life as life's playing with you. Yeah. You're playing the game. You're. It's like a surfer. Yeah. The wave changes. And you've got to change. If you're going to ride the wave, you've got to change. Otherwise, you're going to get Smashed wh- and jumped up into the, the sand. Wave.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's a collaboration. You <coughs> don't just say, okay, this is what I'm going to do in my life and then just go there mm-hmm. because life does bring things in so it's a it's a collaboration it's a dance together
1: yes it's a dance together and then it's a dance together between the two of us
0: right right
1: because we have to do the dance together
0: yeah uh, i was talking with a friend today actually and they were like if you're married for a long time you're actually married to 10 different people because they change over time and so do you and so the relationship changes and you have to always come together at some point even no matter who you become to figure out a way to
1: bridge You know, the gap. Well put, Mm -hmm. well put. You know, and and this young lady right here next to me um, was always throughout our marriage has been willing to play. Not always enthusiastic about, but always willing to play. When, um, (coughs) excuse me, when we did the hearse, The Lincoln hearse. We had been trying to set up a program for veterans for two years, something like that. Uh, A while, and uh, weren't getting anywhere. And then I get a phone call, five o'clock at night, and uh, guy says, uh, um, talks to me for a little bit, and then says, "Are you a veteran?" I said, "Yeah." Are you a combat veteran? I said, yeah. He said, I got the perfect job for you. First off, it cannot be done. It's impossible. And secondly, there's absolutely no money in it. <laughs> I said, good Lord, sign me up. Um, well, it turns out that they wanted us to build this hearse yeah. for the quicentennial. No.
2: Sesquicentennial. Ces- no, yeah, yeah. What's it called? Sesquicentennial. I think. Six that's right. Yeah, yeah. Don't try. But
0: what an honor for you. I mean, that's... I well,
2: mean, it
1: took a an year, and he was dead serious. There was no money. No money at all? No money. They they paid for the materials. That was nice of them.
2: <laughs> well, the condition was that it would start our veterans program. Yes. And that's what happened. And that's what happened.
1: It did. And the veterans got paid. So how did
0: that... How did it start it? What was the mechanism there for the veterans program?
1: <clears throat> we... Um, we we had been going to CR, mm-hmm. talking to him about a veterans program. She's gonna get angry at me. <laughs> and they kept telling us, "Yeah, yeah, great idea, great idea." We're working on it for two years, and no movement. Mm-hmm. There's, they're not doing nothing, yeah. but they're giving us lip service. And it dawned on on me that was that was me that figured that out, Bib that this might be a sexy enough project to get um, CR to move off of square one. And three days later, they had three guys down here. Uh, all veterans. Is, this all is veterans. one
2: of the things that happens in that. No, I know. Going on 48 I know. <laughs> years. Ago, <laughs> I my, know. my version is slightly different. <laughs> I love it. We, we went to the retirement party for the um, director of the Veterans Center because we were both getting counseling at the Veterans Center. Mm-hmm. And at the party, the director of the Veterans Program at CR was there. And she was saying, you know, I got these guys, and they're not going to be able to get their GI benefits. And I said, well, we'll do a summer program. And that started it, and then when we got to the, the hearse, then that brought in the rest of the team. It's That's see, my it's version.
1: It's both of us, yeah, both of us did it, yeah. And anyway, the the uh, stipulation that Viv and I put on it, but the point is that she had to keep this company afloat with no money.
2: Mm-hmm. And well, fortunately, year. fortunately. And she said
1: yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it, the veterans program was that it important has, to her. So you
0: you're have. risking your own financial well-being and that of your family because you think this is a good enough
2: cause to we take We have a pattern of doing that. So you yeah the yeah. school with the kids yeah yeah we've lost money every single year for thirty years even still even still wow
0: yeah yeah well then I but mean why do you persevere
2: because it has to happen
1: the kids the kids have does. to have it it just has to happen
2: yeah we um we got off track. We were, were we going to talk though. about the TV series. We were going to start talking about yeah, the TV series. Yeah, so we had but that was beautiful, idea. so that's
0: good.
2: I <laughs> had the idea of a TV series 18 years ago, and we met with a high-powered dot-com businesswoman that we did work for for her house, and she said, you guys got Eric's got it. I'm going to take you guys down to Los Angeles. No, Las Vegas, uh-huh. and they're having a conference, and, and we're going to sell this thing. Well, it didn't happen. Eighteen years later, he's been through his PTSD counseling. We've done all kinds of projects, and the timing is right. Somebody called us up and said, we're going to do this thing. You take it from here.
1: So it was a young lady. See, I didn't say little girl.
2: (laughs) Anybody under 40s. No, No, I understand.
1: (laughs) And she called again at 5 o'clock at night, and she said, we're going to pitch a uh, new program to a new network for Discovery, and uh, the program's going to be called American Hero. There's going to be 50 of them, one for every state, 50 segments. Would you um, be for California? And I just said, yeah, that'd be ducky, that'd be fine. That's not the first of these calls we got. I People mean, are switching ideas, ideas to you probably, yeah. It's happened, yeah. yeah. Um, so that'd be fine. Um, and then two weeks later, I get a call from a um, gentleman and he says, uh, do you remember the young lady? Yes, I remember the young lady. Well, she worked for me and they didn't like it. They're not going to use that.
2: Um, Discovery isn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. But when they saw your footage in the um, pitch, in the presentation, They said, go to those people right there and see if they would have their own television series. And I have to say it before you tell me no. I had the presence of mind, and I have to say it this way because I don't have it very often. I had the presence of mind to say, I have to talk to my wife. I'll get back to you. And what that did is it bought Viv and I three days. And then we called him back and said, because we, then we knew what we wanted yeah. out of it. <clears throat> and we told him, uh, if you're looking for some idiot reality show um, with a, I don't know, pro- protagonist. protagonist. We and learned this, that word. Yeah. That, um, we're smoke. We are so far down the road, you don't even see our dust. Yeah. Um, we're out of here. Um, and he said, no, that is not what we're after at all, that the network has changed because of COVID. COVID, COVID? And the network is saying, we do not need drama. Uh, The world needs uh, winners. They need uplifting things. So we said, okay, we'll do it on on two conditions. uh, conditions. Thank you. Number one is that we can promote to the young people that being a craftsman, is an honorable and noble way to spend the rest of your life. Uh, Because the education system is not doing that. (laughs) And secondly, that we can show off our little gem of a community to the outside world. Not that they're gonna come here. I mean, we're five hours north of San Francisco, for God's sakes. But show them that there are these little gems um, around the country, and we're one of them. I think we're a crown jewel. Yeah. Um, and they said, okay. And we got a call two days later, and production company, and the production company said they bought a pilot. And the production company sent eight people out here <coughs> for two weeks, and they filmed the pilot, put a quick pilot together, and that was the trolley one. Yeah. Yeah. And um. Sent that to the network, and the network uh, bought the entire season. Yeah.
0: Um, Without it having been produced yet. They just saw the pilot. and yeah. The pilot,
2: right. Yeah. Now, I have to jump back just a little bit. Ten years ago, mm-hmm. um, a similar thing happened. This uh, young man down in L.A. Um, was still a student at USC at the time, and he wanted to do something about craftsmen. So he put Craig's ads all over the country asking for craftspeople. Mm -hmm. And Tony Smithers, who was the head of the Visitors Bureau, saw this and said, Eric, you should call these guys. So they interviewed Eric, a young woman again. And then later, the guy called back and talked to Eric and agreed to come up here. And he had uh, a contract with Sony and Sony was going to do a thing about craftsmen. Mm-hmm. And after he was here and talked with Eric for a little while, he went outside and he got on his cell phone and had a conversation, came back in and told Eric, "I just told Sony I'm not doing it for them. I'm keeping this footage." And he put together a little nine minute documentary it took him a <laughs> year because he was still a student yeah. mm-hmm. um, and he edited it down and made a nine minute documentary that has had Six hundred thousand views wow. on
1: YouTube alone,
2: yeah, and, Al-
1: almost a million, and between Vimeo well, b- and YouTube, yeah,
2: and that was one of the things that I was able to send to the LA guy and say, "This is, this is what he looks like. This is how it is." Yeah,
1: this is what it
0: is here. And
2: Ben Proudfoot formed a production company, and he just won an Emmy.
0: Did he really? No, an Oscar.
2: An Oscar. He wow. an Oscar, won an Oscar. Just the, the basketball. Wow. Uh, yeah. First black woman basketball star.
0: Yeah.
1: And we were the and first ones he did. Talent
0: and recognizes talent, right? And yeah.
2: Well, he, yeah. For some reason, people that are in the industry mm-hmm. could see that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was interesting. That's an amazing story. So what was the effect of having the film crew around? Did you find that invasive or uh, how was that?
2: (laughs) Holy crap! (laughs) Well, you know, you've got a team of people who are really good at what they do and they're used to being the boss. Mm -hmm. When they step in, they say, here's what we're going to do and everybody does what they're supposed to do. Then you got a team of people over here who know how to make the stuff. Mm Well, they talk different languages. And they're
1: used to being.
2: And we absolutely are used to being the bosses <laughs> yeah, after yeah. all these years. Yeah, <laughs> You don't come in here in my home yeah, and yeah. tell me what to do. Because it is your house. As it is. It is this is land. our home. Yeah, exactly. It is. More so than any place we've actually put our heads down and <laughs> in. So it was a little rough. Yeah. It was a little rough. And then the other part that was difficult was that other shows, there's a formula. This mm-hmm. is a cooking show, so you have these steps and you show these things in this order. Mm-hmm. And if this is a show where we're going to fix a building or make a product, this is how you do it. Well, somewhere somehow the idea of creating something different developed. Mm-hmm. And we believe that a large part of that was the lady who's called a showrunner.
1: Mm-hmm. She's the director.
2: She's, you know, yeah. we would call them the director. Yeah, she yeah. puts it all together. She answers to the people above her, mm-hmm. and she directs the people here. Um, but, oh, I remember. She came up here. She's, they hired her because they'd worked with her, and they knew her. What's her name? Her name's Amber Engelman. Okay. She's been doing this for 20-odd years. So she said, well, I'm not going to show up there with the film crew without going there myself. So yeah. she came up here and spent a day with us. And then she called them up and said, you guys, this isn't like a flip kind of show. There's a whole lot more going on here. Yeah. And she started that. So when, when they came here that first week to do the pilot, part of the people still thought it should be the formula that works and everybody knows it's going to work.
1: Flip show formula
2: right and then other people were saying no there's something different here It's gonna be a hybrid of a documentary and a reality based. It's gonna be something different and It worked (laughs) I
0: I Mentioned it when I came in when we were walking across the, the lot I mean I've only seen two episodes but I thought that there was it was different enough from what you typically see on a reality show that there's like this Almost a spiritual element to it, like there's this yes, philosophical you thing going it. on. You yeah, saw it. And there's yeah. just like a do- lot of deep rumination and talking about the environment and how that informs the. I mean, like you talk about the tree, where you if you're going to cut down a tree that's perfect, you got to make sure that the product that you produce on the other end has that spirit of perfection somehow in it, yes. even yeah. though you can never yes. match it. I mean, just a lot of little gems like that that make it a moral more than just a. You know, let's watch some guy turn this,
2: yeah. you know, barn yeah.
0: into an apartment building or whatever. So uh, yeah, so we've,
2: we've had a lot of comments, um, and one of them, as a friend of Kara's, and the the lady said, Eric is a mix between um, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers, Bob Ross, the painter, and I don't know the Kirk Doug. No. Kurt, not Kurt definitely. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. Two of those guys are on PBS, I would, I would point uh-huh, out. you know, uh-huh. key, so. <laughs> that's, that's a, uh That's a Good plug. Good Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you like that? And I can see the Kurt Russell. uh uh-huh. He doesn't know who that is, but you get that wavy <laughs> hair there. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and all the other stuff is true. I mean, I guess the question to ask is from his wife. Is he that in real
2: life? Yes. So he's all those he things is, for real. He is authentic on camera and the fact that they were able to to show him that way to to get him into a place where he felt comfortable enough i mean he's wandering around with these cameras in his face the whole time yeah how do you not be everybody yeah, can yeah. do that absolutely but he is authentically the way that they present him there's more to him than what they can show yeah I, I tell people that having somebody come and do a tv show about you is a little bit like giving somebody um, control over your Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Yeah, no. <laughs> You're gonna do what? <laughs> but the trust is there and they, they've done a fabulous job. We have fun. And, and the camera crew and the, yeah. there's a whole bunch of people that have to work together and it,
1: it well, works. For me, uh, the first two weeks were ragged really ragged, because they came in and started bossing us around. Yeah. And, boy, all the PTSD flags went up. Um, And um, But, once I got it figured out, it's just like the military. Exactly like the Army. I only got one stripe. (laughs) Everybody outranks me. Everybody in the world outranks me. (laughs) Once I got that figured out, then then I could roll with it and just stand and smoke my pipe until they said, "All right, go do this," and I'd yeah. go do that, and, um, and and then they they all got comfortable bossing me around, mm-hmm. and that's when the magic really happened because every one of them, the two camera guys were top 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 notch, the the uh, sound guy, you know. We're in the middle of Sequoia Park, yeah. And I'm walking down the trail, doing that about the trees,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he and he starts the screaming. Huh?
2: The sound guy. The sound guy, Mark yeah. Goldie.
1: Um, he starts screaming,
2: "Stop! Stop!
1: Cut! Cut!" He don't have that authority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, everybody stops. He runs up to me and drop your drawers. <laughs> and I said, "What? <laughs> drop your drawers!" I pull down my Levi's, and he runs a cord down my leg and tapes a microphone to my boot and plugs <laughs> it. In. And now pull him back up again and plugs it back into that thing that I have to wear that he yeah. has, oh, yeah. that sound thing. The pack, yeah. I have to have the sound of your foot squishing on the turf while you're walking <laughs> on amazing. the duff. You know... That they felt that comfortable yeah. and that they every one of them did their job that good. Yeah. They were
2: top, top notch. And, and those aerial shots, the drone shots yeah, yeah. aren't those they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I well I things. mean the whole thing about this whole like complex. I mean they get all these like nice nature shots looking through the grass and the
2: birds and I mean it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Two things. You downplay yourself. You say, Oh yeah, they're bossing me around, I just stand around smoking my pipe. No.
0: <laughs> he has got
2: a memory and an ability to think several steps ahead. Mm-hmm. So he may be standing there smoking his pipe, but he's got the ideas going and he's directing where those stories go sure. and wrapping them around. Yeah, well, that's I, one thing. But yeah. like and, any private, you can't let him know that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that we figured out is that the bridging the gap between these two languages, Um, for instance, they'd say, okay, tomorrow we're going to do this. They they come up with a schedule every night. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't take into account that the paint has to dry. Yeah. So then we figured out that our daughter, Kara has the ability to put things into sequential order that plug things where they need to go. Mm -hmm. And she knows how to do stuff. And she knows her dad. Yeah. So she was the, the translator the or whatever, yeah. She was yeah. the liaison, and so they hired her to be the liaison, and that made things go a lot smoother, yeah. a lot smoother. I
0: mean, that's yeah. one of the questions I was going to ask, since you had your daughters involved and also your employees, right? Yeah. Uh, how did you guys all come through that? Stronger together, or was there a tension? How did that work out? There was
2: tension, and we got stronger.
0: <laughs> Both. Both, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because we we were nervous. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what we were doing, the girls and I. That was that was rough. I don't mm-hmm. know if Caesar was nervous. Caesar and Louise rolled with it. He seems like oh, an anchor oh the whole time. Oh my God. Just, just <laughs> absolute, even anchor. solid. And the whole joking that they do. Yeah. That's always been there.
0: Sure. Yeah. You can sense that. I think. Oh, I, I felt just, like it was oh, natural. Oh,
2: absolutely. So the the fact that the camera people were able to pick that up and <coughs> expand it. Um, and having him talk in Spanish, mm-hmm. you know, one of the camera guys was from Argentina, ironically, yeah. Wow. And so he interviewed Caesar in Spanish, and then they put, you know, the, yeah, whatever, is, whatever the, the subtitles, yeah. yeah. Cool. So it was, it was really quite amazing how the whole thing came together, and can, and we just started, you know.
1: Can can she tell you? Can can you tell him
2: the. Um Meditation that you got. Oh, yeah, this is so cool. So I I'm a psychic and a medium and I meditate regularly. So I'm meditating and asking for guidance on, you know, this whole TV thing because the industry does not have a good reputation. Yeah, you know, there's some sucky stuff that goes on. Yeah, absolutely. very profit driven. So I was told in meditation that the team that was coming together to do this TV series We're all bright lights in an industry riddled with darkness. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely that way. Chip and Joanna started out as talent and then quit and then came back and said, yeah, if we get our own network. And so they are creating a network that honors the talent. Mm Huge, huge.
0: Chip and Joanna, I'm not sure who. gains. The, the,
2: They're the ones who start and are the major owners in Magnolia Network. Okay, okay, cool. So Magnolia Network is um, not under but affiliated with Discovery. With Discovery. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. So then along comes Amber. And she's she calls it kumbaya. <laughs> I call it woo-woo. Yes. All of that woo-woo stuff. She's totally on board with it. Yeah. The guy that is the head guy at Discovery that we work with, I was able to tell him this. And he's totally spiritual. Yeah. This is it's just really quite amazing how it's it's fate again. Yeah. It's all lighting up.
0: Well and like I I mean, I said that there's a message that shines through in the show where I think that the positivity is um uh, infectious, or I don't know how to yeah. describe it, but it's yeah. definitely got something it's, that lifts people it's up. There. yeah. It's
2: and, amazing and we get that, those comments from you people. that it
1: that way, because we have gotten hundreds, can I say it in plural? Hundreds. Hundreds of uh, responses, um, written and emails and... Phone calls. Phone calls <laughs> and um, social media, all of it. The one common thread throughout every one of them, Mm-hmm. is the show brings me peace
2: Yeah, absolutely yeah yeah
1: that yeah, I can see <laughs> it yeah
2: yeah People say that, that Eric reminds them of their dad or their grandpa and they just have really good memories of that or they say my kids are dyslexic or I'm dyslexic and I understand how hard that is um, And then we the last one which you haven't seen yet is when we work with the kids we had yeah. four kids come down at paint the skid camp, make paint and paint the skid camp. And so the the giving back to the community is something that people feel real positive about. Yeah. It's cool.
0: I mean, your character, I mean, I say character because it's a television show, but it's like you are clear and, I mean, uh, from the outset that you've had struggle, you've had, like, you know, a pain in your life, but you're at a point where you're calm and centered and, uh, There's this thing on the internet called ASMR where like you like to hear the sound of things because somehow it like puts you in a meditative state. Your voice is kind of like that. There's just this thing about you that centers people. Mm. Uh, And I think, I mean, I think partly it's you're mindful. I mean, I don't sense mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of distraction going on in your head that you're focused and I think that that helps soothe other people I mean that's what I've he's got a great voice. and he's got a great yeah. voice I mean very Hollywood Sings bass you know <laughs> yeah, does he? yeah, and, I've, yeah. Uh,
1: and I've reached a point in my life where um, um, I can talk about my my own shortcomings because I don't have to prove myself to anybody yeah I have proven myself to myself
0: how do you do that?
1: Only time. That's the only thing that brings it around. When you finally have proven yourself to yourself, then whatever outside stimulus comes, it doesn't make any difference. You know, I don't, uh, I, I get up five o'clock every morning. And I go sit on the porch, uh, back porch, and I smoke my pipe, and I drink my coffee and I think, um, and I talked to myself and and uh we watched the pilot when the um it hadn't aired yet, and they showed us a private filming of it uh the film crew did when they got it and uh and I'm out there five o'clock in the morning and i I'm thinking to myself um I don't get it everybody's oohing and awe and everybody's there i mean the network and the and the film crew everybody's and on over this and it's just Viv and I doing what, what we do, I, I don't get it. And my own voice said, perfect. As long as you don't get it, everything will be fine. <laughs> 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 just stay, don't get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> we don't need you to get a
2: swell head.
1: <laughs> I don't think it was that, I think it was just, you know, that somehow Throughout all of the stuff that I've gone through in my life, I have been able to keep my innocence. I, I don't know how. Um, but, and that innocence is the curiosity of how things do, what, what they do, why, why do things work and why don't they work? And um, how do trees work and, um you know, it, it, it <clears throat> um, one thing I just found out, you know the leaves in the uh, deciduous trees turn color and and go to those brilliant uh, colors in the fall. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I thought that's because the, uh, the um, uh, leaf is going to die and gets rid of and uh, has shed its chlorophyll and at least didn't she shed its chlorophyll the tree sucked the chlorophyll out of the leaf back into the tree wow. so that next spring, when a new bud starts, the tree can shove the chlorophyll into it and the tree doesn't have to make chlorophyll all over again. That'd be way too much for the tree. Yeah. Um, so without chlorophyll, every tree uh, would look that color all the time. Yeah. That's what our life would be like. Um, it's the chlorophyll that is the... It's an actual atomic energy plant, Mm -hmm. a a power plant inside that leaf.
0: Yeah, it's quantum. What goes on in chlorophyll is totally quantum. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's tearing apart the um, water molecule, uh, breaking it into um, oxygen and hydrogen, and making sugar out of it.
2: Yeah. That's what he's studying now is quantum physics. Oh, sorry. Oh, that's one of my passions as well. So I got got off on a tangent. I'm sorry. No, I love it. See, that's one
1: of the rabbit trails. No, no,
2: no. It was good. I just wanted to add a a second part to what he said. Only time. Only time if you are aware. Mm -hmm. If you're just plugging in to social media and television and going through the moves you're not going to shift and grow and change. Yeah. But when you are aware and paying attention and looking towards a deeper understanding of yourself, then uh-huh. with time, then you can shift and change. Uh-huh. And you can come to a place of, of inner acceptance.
0: You have to be ready yeah. to learn, basically. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: You can't just float through life.
0: That's one of the, I mean, that's probably where I want to, like, end this conversation. You guys run a school, right? And um, I I think it's, um, you talked about the difficulties you've had in school, and some of those kids are kind of that target, right? Yes. When you're interacting with students and stuff, what do you think is important as a teacher and as someone who's giving them an opportunity that, that maybe they wouldn't have gotten elsewhere, what do you feel like is important to instill in those kids that maybe they're not getting from the culture more broadly? I mean, kids are on... Social media, my own kids, or you know, and Mm -hmm. and I often feel overwhelmed because I want to anchor them in something that is more concrete. And um, I guess, what do you see that the kids might be missing, and how can we help to like fill that?
2: Well, one of the things Eric always talks about, you know, that hands-on work is a powerful way of understanding yourself and the world. Um, It's a healing modality, really. My focus is more, um, you don't have to be prisoner to what happened or didn't happen in your childhood. Mm-hmm. You can make up your mind to go and do and build and create a new way of living. And both Eric and I, uh, what was it, our daughter Kara said you know, that we're the poster children for PTSD. I didn't have the combat vet stuff, but I had a lot of trauma in my childhood, so I understand how hard it is. It it isn't mm-hmm. it isn't an easy journey. You you really have to work at it, but you can do it. I think, and that's
1: yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, understand. Um, you you've heard the term, w- "What don't kill you makes you stronger." Absolutely. Now, what's that mean? Does it make you Um, a muscle stronger? Yeah, probably probably some of that Does it make you um, mentally stronger? Probably some of that in it too Does it make you spiritually stronger? I would say there's probably some of that too but I think the strength it gives you is empathy because you've walked a mile in them boots I can relate to these kids because I've walked a mile in those boots. I know that mile. <coughs> and they can, um, we're on the air, we, uh, they, they understand BS. They see it two blocks away. Yeah. They've been fed all the BS they need. Sure. Um, you be real to them and let them know I get it. I get what you're going through. I get it better than you get it because I've been clear through it now at the other end. Yeah. Uh, man, I think you're doing a great job just getting through it um, and just keep on. It's that empathy that, uh, and then be their cheerleader.
2: I was uh, gonna say, that's something that we've yeah. always focused on yeah. is, is to give praise and support and encouragement. Um, the other thing that I think that has been important in the way that we deal with kids is to not act like we have all the answers. That there's only one right answer, yeah. and I'm the one that has it. <clears throat> That's totally not the way that we work with, with kids.
1: In the last uh, program, when you when you watch it, um, the second day we made a mistake in the paint. The paint didn't come out.
2: Eric made a mistake.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And that's what the TV didn't get across, I don't think. The kids didn't make the mistake. Um, They made the mistake in the gloppy of the um, flower. The The proportions,
2: right. The proportions, but... We gave them one wrong element (coughs) that we didn't know wouldn't work. I
1: thought chalk would make white. Uh, Well... Turns out chalk's not a mineral. Calcium carbonate is not a mineral. It's a uh, um, it, it, it ground-up shells from um, billions of years of, of uh, um, sea life, microorganisms, sea life. So the chalk didn't work. Yeah. Well, we then we figured out a way around it real quick and got a paint that did work out of the same batch of paint and and completed the project but they made it look like the kids made the mistake and he, i told them you did not do that i did that that was me i made that mistake i'm owning it yeah um,
2: and, <laughs> and I'm not less than because of it and
1: yeah. yeah, I'm
0: a, yeah. I'm fine with myself. Yeah, everyone makes mistakes. It's Everybody okay. That it. didn't yeah. work. Let's try it some different way. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> Often you learn more when you do make a mistake. That's yeah. how we learn.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I mean last question, what's the future hold at this point? There's gonna be a season two, I understand, right? We
2: it hasn't been official, okay. but it's moving in that direction. I think we can safely say that. Okay. Um, but honestly even though I believe that Eric has been building towards this pretty much his whole life, there's more. I think that the, the play that we produced, we're going to promote that, Radioman. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written two books of poetry. Um, we're going to promote those. We're going to travel. Um,
1: And the girls are taking over. And the girls
2: are. Blue Hawks. Yeah,
1: that's the Jesus Christ. We just won the lottery. (laughs) As far as I'm concerned, we we won everything.
2: And they are going to be more on the second season. Yeah. Bring the rest of the family in some more. Yeah. We have the village next door, which is still on the on the book somewhere
0: yeah that's uh, one of the things i was going to ask you about was the, the village i know that was going to be like a historic park kind of thing right it's yeah.
2: technically a craftsman's village yeah um mm-hmm. there have been a lot of roadblocks um but we're familiar with those so a of, there's a lot of unknowns still
0: bureaucratic rigmarole kind of stuff or
1: yeah, mostly financial roadblocks oh that's uh,
0: ever, ever the
1: way yeah it's a a $5 million project, which is uh, a lot of money to a lot of people. Um, and there are people that it's not very much money to. So. Did, did yeah. you
2: tell me you worked with a contractor and he said in San Francisco and he said he doesn't take projects that are less than 5 million yeah, that, houses for 5 and million? And that's one house. And that's one house. <laughs> so it's all relative. Of course, <coughs> a
0: one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco, you know, yeah. geez yeah. Louise. It's all relative. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of things in the work still we do get to travel at some point yeah
0: yeah is there a date for when you guys are going to retire or
2: is there is it, no such thing okay that's what i was <laughs> <saying>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's you are that sort evolution of thing remember we were yeah, talking yeah. about that
0: yeah and you are so like associated with this place i'm sure that they'll always require your you know presence in some way or another
2: yeah people come and they want to take his picture yeah they want to have their picture taken with him it's no.
0: not often that you meet somebody who has what you have, Eric. So I'll
1: just you know I don't know I don't know what it is, I but agree. there's something cool about it. I agree. <laughs> I don't get it. As <laughs> long as I don't get it, everything will be okay. That's right. <laughs> it should be everyone's motto. Anyway.
2: Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jerry Rohde listened to our conversation with Eric and Viviana and offered up historic insights to further the conversation. So uh, any thoughts about what you heard and what what did it bring to mind as someone who's studied history on the north coast? Well you know
3: there have been very tied in with a lot of uh, heavy duty physical activity you know in the north coast logging uh, being at the millworks you know that. They're in a very historic building that used to be the uh, power station uh, that uh, get, uh, provided the power for the trolley cars in Eureka. And, uh, you know, that building has been there since 1892. It's a real solid structure. and uh, It's, I, I think, a very fitting place for them to be with the types of work that, you know, they do. Yeah, um, And, you know, listening to them talk, it actually brings you back to a much earlier time in Humboldt County. Uh, Not just the time when Eric and his wife were out there, you know, logging and doing, you know, the stuff in the woods, but they were sort of at the tail end of a much longer time period Mm -hmm. of uh, the kind of unrestrained uh, logging that took place for decades up here without uh, any environmental controls, but also without any um, safety procedures, really, to protect the workers. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about it, thinking about um, uh, what they had gone through uh, and what people before them had gone through, there's really this uh, sort of um, unobserved uh, part of our history that doesn't get uh, written up much about. And, You know, what it is is what happened to the people who went out into the woods and risked their lives and a lot of times lost their lives and had, uh, uh, I think, some momentous experiences out there that uh, no one can imagine, you know, occurring today. But it was the reality for generation after generation of these people. I saw a statistic once that uh, at the height of uh, the logging back, go oh, say, in the 1920s, that um, it was more dangerous than being a soldier in combat, mm-hmm. that uh, something like one percent of the people that were working out in the woods were killed every year. One percent. Wow. And you think about that, so let's say you start like Eric did, at age 15. And, you know, he could easily have worked out there 40, 50 years, and the odds would be about even that he would have been killed, you know, that 1%. Over the course of that 1% a year, but if you're doing it for lots of years. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, not necessarily even being killed, but having crippling accidents. You know, I when we first moved up here in the 1970s, we would see old timers around that were missing an arm or a leg. And most of those, I think, were the result of logging or mill. accidents that did that to them, or also being involved with the logging trains. Uh, People don't think about that much, but that was very dangerous also, especially uh, in the early days before they had air brakes or before they uh, had uh, modern couplings that they do today. Mm -hmm. Whether you were uh, logging um, uh, on a logging railroad or you were uh, on a commercial railroad, uh, the poor guys who were out there switching cars and uh, doing that type of work could lose a hand or arm really easily. So um, th- I think there's this um, time in the past that is so different from now that we really, you know, we can't go back to it. We can't sense it. And people like Eric are a connection with that past. And it uh, it's something that, still has its marks today on the people, on the land. Um, When we go out and uh, look at some of the areas that have been logged, uh, there's been regrowth out there. There's been problems because of the type of logging that have been done in the past. I spent uh, some time about 15 years ago down at Humboldt Redwood State Park uh, where there had been a lot of logging in the 1940s and 1950s Uh, not so much of redwood, because that had been protected already as part of the park, but up on the hillsides uh, in the Bull Creek area, Mm -hmm. there's lots of Douglas fir that was being cut after World War II, and uh, no restrictions on what was happening, and uh, when I went out there, it was because the park was starting to rehabilitate some of those logged over hillsides, and we went out and surveyed the area to see there's anything of historical significance out there but what we mostly saw were um, hillsides that might have been 65-70% slopes that had been used as skid roads where they'd actually be hauling the logs down these extremely steep, uh, steep slopes and then getting them down to the haul roads where they could actually be put on trucks and taken out and uh, what had happened over time was that those areas became like conduits for water during a rain episode yeah, had these off, right? yeah. yeah, they had these terrific uh, rains down there, you know seventy eighty inches, and then in a, a big storm like they had in fifty five or sixty four flood mm-hmm. it really came down, and you could see what was happening uh, what had happened we were I was looking at it you know forty years later, but got these Steep slopes that have been gouged out by logs being hauled down them the water comes down there and picks up a lot of volume And then it goes into these uh, Hall roads and becomes like a river and goes down there and you've you channeled everything in a way where it's digging out into the hillside and uh, it's uh, bringing down a lot of debris because a lot of stuff hadn't been cleaned up and also uh, the trees hadn't had the time enough to regrow to provide some sort of cover uh, mm-hmm. that would interfere with that rainfall and so 1955 you had terrific flooding there in uh, the Bull Creek area I've seen pictures of uh, the houses because it used to be a, a community out there of 300 people wow. and uh, <laughs> There's this a uh, picture of um, a little boy he's about eight years old and he's standing out in front of his house and uh, by the front porch, except his head is going to hit the roof of the porch because it had filled up with four feet of mud. Oh, wow. And that was typical. If You were lucky if that's all that happened to your house. Yeah. you know, And uh, that happened all throughout the Bull Creek Canyon and a lot of other places. Uh, it also affected uh, the redwoods that were farther downstream. And it was at that point that uh, the state decided they'd go in and uh, purchase that whole... Drainage system to protect the redwoods in the Rockefeller forest because they were not being logged But they were getting washed out because of the logging upstream so, you know, there's uh, and uh, I can go back and look at pictures from the 1920s and see, you know the way logging was done then and uh, the way the hillsides were It, it looked like a war zone, you know afterwards and so uh, it was a war in a couple of ways, and and one way it was a war where the loggers were in danger because the techniques that they were using, like in the 1920s, were extremely dangerous. You know, um, Eric was talking about you know how uh, these loggers had to uh, develop techniques for doing the logging and to you know uh, meet the demand for the lumber that uh, was pretty steady and at times would reach peaks like at the end of World War II. but to get the production up to that level they were always looking for ways to increase the production make it more uh, efficient quicker and you go back to the 19th century you had somebody like uh, David Evans who was one of the big uh, lumber mill owners a very inventive guy he developed something they called uh, Evans's third saw And so we're out here in the redwoods, right? And uh, no one's ever had to deal with trees that big before. Mm -hmm. And you know, you could be up in Washington state and you have big dug fir, you know, for uh, those areas is gigantic, but you come down here and there's no comparison. So um, the mills were trying to develop ways of uh, sawing these huge pieces of redwood. And uh, they finally came up with a system where you had two saw blades, one at the top and one at the bottom of the log, cutting through. But uh, Evans found a way to add another saw into that and increase the size of the log that they could cut, uh, making things, you know, more efficient. And then. So he did that in about 1869 or so. He was partners with uh, William Carson, Dolbeer Carson. Ah, yeah. or, I, I'm sorry, he, he was partners with uh, uh, Joseph Russ. But the partner of William Carson, John Dolbeer, he came along and in the 1880s, he developed what they called the steam donkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, then that uh, really increased production at that end. Now we, we've already done some things to improve production at the mill. But now out in the woods, it's insta- a lot easier
0: to get logs to the trains, right? Yeah, whatever, yeah,
3: because yeah. you've got you know these uh, the logs the ha- the trees have been cut they're on the ground they've been bucked up into log sized sections but they're still tremendously heavy and now uh, they start using steam power rather than oxen power or something like that and that's another you know process that uh, speeds things up mm-hmm. and so. You get to a time like uh, the 1920s, and uh, they've figured out that rather than dragging the logs along the ground using a steam donkey and having them get hung up in things and knock down other trees and do all of that, what happens if you put it up in the air so they get into the, a time period of high-lead logging, and they actually are stringing cables now between a couple of trees so that the logs can be hoisted up and just moved through the air from uh, where they've been cut or near where they've been cut to a landing. And talk about something dangerous.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: (laughs) You've got something there that's, uh, you know, the size of a small locomotive coming through the air, and if you don't pay attention, that thing could hit you. Yeah, just
0: squash you like a bug. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Wow. You know, one of the things that was interesting with talking with Eric was that uh, he was a little bit emotional at a point when we were talking about sort of like the environmental movement environmental movement of the 1980s and stuff, Mm -hmm. and how there was a lot of blame placed on the logging community for uh, all of the, you know, environmental issues Mm -hmm. that had um, gone before. Now, to be fair, you know, these people were living and operating in a time when they just weren't thinking Mm -hmm. in that same way that we've come to think of, like our effect on the biome and um, those sorts of things. But uh, it's interesting, you know, it's like how do we as a culture value the worth of that kind of work, which was, I mean, courageous, and it was a way for people to make their livings for their families and advance their communities, and um, while at the same time recognizing the damage that it caused, how do we, like, deal with that cognitive dissonance in, in your mm-hmm. mind? I mean, wh- 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 where do we place that in our sort of collective community conscience?
3: You know, I think that's, that's a question that people have to grapple with all the time, and it's a really tough, tough question because in one way, you know, what was going on out there was uh, something heroic. You know, I compared it to warfare, and these fellows are out there risking their lives, doing brutal work, uh, a lot of times not making a tremendous amount of money, and suffering injuries that shortened, if not their lifespan, at least their ability to do that kind of work, so mm-hmm. you know you might be fifty years old, but your body 's uh, eighty years old in terms of the damage that had happened to it yeah. and you know i've never i 've never been a logger but i 've cut some of my own firewood, cut down some fairly good sized trees to do that and Realized there were times, you know when I was in danger even in you know those little situations And yeah. It doesn't take it just takes one thing to go wrong you Yeah know? one I
0: miscalculation mean. of the physics in terms of where it's gonna yeah. go or how it's gonna react yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, So, you know you you've got people out there who are in, in a way they're like soldiers They're risking their lives to do something and it's about mm-hmm. as dangerous as being a soldier but then you know on the other side you've got Uh, There's damage occurring there, uh, you know, and we're still paying the price for that especially from uh, logging in the very early days when there were just no restrictions and You could have the the situations like I talked about like down at Bull Creek where you were just setting things up For disaster and so you've got another factor in there. You've got the people that are out there in the woods uh, making good pay compared to a lot of other people in the county, but not great pay. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the owners of the mills, and those are the people that are actually getting rich. Yeah. Uh, those are the people that can afford to build something like the Carson Mansion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that can have, um, uh, oh, well, there's another mill, uh, the Occidental Mill uh, in Old Town Eureka, right? Oh, it's over near where the rescue mission is today mm-hmm. on that side of town. Yeah. And, uh, uh, they logged out in Ryan's Slough and Ryan's Creek and back of Cutton. And uh, the family that owned the Occidental Mill Company, the Burns's, uh, they were wealthy enough that they could have a fancy redwood paneled house out by Ryan Creek. They had a mansion in San Francisco. They had a beach house or ocean front house down, I believe, in Monterey. Wow. So, you know, here, I mean, Here's somebody that got fabulously wealthy and you have a handful of those kinds of people and Then you think about it and you know, what would happen if instead of those people? getting so much money uh, They didn't get as much because they weren't making as much profit and they weren't making as much profit because they were being more Mm Conservation-minded they were you know, not just clear-cutting a whole hillside not. Uh, just doing a quick and dirty job of it mm-hmm. uh, because you know The people that are really benefiting from that are the the people up at the top. They're the ones you know if you do it 15% uh, faster and 15% dirtier. They're going to make the extra 15% Profit out of that it's yeah. not going to go to the loggers so I think built into the system, you know, there was an incentive to um, Engage in quick and dirty logging practices mm-hmm. that first of all were dangerous for the workers secondly damaged the environment and the people that Weren't at risk were the timber company owners And I think you you've got to really put them into the equation when you start looking at some of this
0: Yeah, it's an interesting connection there because you talk about that's sort of the early stage of logging with the carsons mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, and uh, there was a corporate d- you know a uh, corporate-led decisions to be as efficient as possible and mm-hmm. cut as many trees as possible. And then they talk about this, like, with especially with PL later on, they talk about this golden age when it was family owned mm-hmm. and the business was more about kind of being conservationists, or at yeah. least keeping their business model operative mm-hmm. in the long term. And then you have the whole, you know, Hurwitz yeah. slash, uh, you know, um, jump bond yep. where it became again about profit and the impact of all that laddered, or mattered less and less again. Yeah. And so we had an increase uh, after that point of some more environmental degradation. Things don't change much, you know, It's no. there is this consistent through line where
3: and you had uh, Charlie Hurwitz as an excellent example of t- someone taking you back to the days when the owners had so much power and where so much damage could be done by a r- sort of rogue company that was out there you know, doing things their own way and trying to cut corners, trying to avoid following proper restrictions even, with, because by the time Hurwitz was here, there were some restrictions on logging and they weren't being followed very well by his company.
1: Yeah.
3: And, but y- it's interesting you mentioned Pacific Lumber Company because uh, in a way that idea that it was family owned and that it was uh, the Murphy family, you know, kind of ran things for years and years. Um, that's part myth because- I'm sure it is, yeah, yeah it's ne-
0: never quite as good as it seemed, no. to, you know, yeah.
3: And, you know, by the time Hurwitz uh, took over, uh, I think the Murphy family only owned about 3% of PL. But when PL first got started, and this is a story that's hardly ever put out there, It was a a corporation uh, formed by about eight individuals that included a former governor of California the president of the Bank of California and two or three other individuals who were really heavy hitters they had a lot of power Mm -hmm. and they got their start with PL because they were able to purchase state land state university land money that was supposed to go and support the start of the university of california at berkeley but they got a sweetheart deal because three of these members of the corporation had been on the board of trustees for the university and they were able to pick up the land at something like uh, a dollar and a quarter an acre (laughs) Uh, and they also had the choice land uh, that they could get and so they picked the property right around Scotia and going up the Eel River up towards uh, Dyerville and South Fork, uh, they found out they they had people up here who knew where the best land was and they uh, got about 11 or 12,000 acres and they got that in the 1860s and they formed their corporation but they didn't do anything with it for about 20 years. Uh, They had the corporation in place, they owned the land but the problem was there was nowhere they could take the lumber out of the area if they milled it. Mm-hmm. And so they built finally their mill there at Scotia, but it only became effective to operate that when they could haul the lumber to Humboldt Bay. And there wasn't a railroad that could do that until 1884. That's when they tunneled under Table Bluff mm-hmm. and actually connected the Eel River Valley with Humboldt Bay. Wow. So then, PL opened their mill, they had a spur railroad that connected with the main line, and then they bought a whole bunch of uh, Bayside frontage at Fields Landing, because mm-hmm. there's a deep water channel there. Yeah. They bought four docks, they had their own uh, fleet of steam schooners uh, that they owned themselves. They could take the lumber from Scotia up there, put it on the schooners and take it, you know, wherever PL could sell it, all around the Pacific Rim and, you know, down to San Francisco, places like that. Wow, so uh, you know we're talking about uh, you know heavy hitting big time activities, uh sort of like giant chess pieces that are being moved around in the timber industry uh, so that once again, a small group of people can make a lot of money, yeah, and you know. A lot of people did get work and they were able to make money too but there was this great imbalance of uh, who was getting rich and who was just barely making it
0: yeah you know that's what's sort of interesting it's like even though the main driver of that whole development like you said is Mm -hmm. the small cadre of folks who are at the controls who make Mm -hmm. the most money But what it did for the community is it provided a generations of steady employment where if you were 18 and you didn't want to go to college or you didn't have the money to do anything else, you could go into a career Mm -hmm. that even though it's dangerous and even though it's challenging, there was money in it and there was a future. You could buy a house and you could go on vacation. You could do these things and be a functioning part of the, uh, you know, middle-class absent, you know, timber, and mm-hmm. absent fishing now, and mm-hmm. I mean, as more and these things get sort of degraded over time because the opportunities aren't there, we don't have that middle of the road, uh, mm-hmm. you know, incentive or mm-hmm. a, a generational um, mm-hmm. wealth generation. Mm-hmm. So people kind of get lost. It's like now, even though what drove that was the very rich mm-hmm. getting really rich, since there's no drive for the rich to come here and invest mm-hmm. and do any of that, they mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. And so our economic prospects tumble. It's yeah. like it's almost like communities have to have a target on their back for someone who's r- wealthy and got mm-hmm. capital to come in and where they can make their wealth explode in order for some of that trickle runoff mm-hmm. to yeah. fall to the rest of the community, even though it's temporary, because as soon yeah. as that whatever yeah. goods and services are gone, they're gone, and the yeah. company's not going to stick around anymore. Yeah. It really speaks to sort of the unhealthy way that our, community or our economies are built. It's like yeah. no one's looking to make a community healthy they're just looking to get whatever they can out of that community as fast as they can and then move on to the next thing you know
3: yeah and you're you're absolutely right that's what happened here then you see a a kind of repetition of the cycle I think with cannabis cultivation sure yeah yeah. Uh, you have people coming in once cannabis becomes legal in certain places or there's a tremendous demand for the product like we had here for a while. Mm-hmm. People can come in, they can buy some land, they can abuse the land, you know, by doing non-permitted work on it. And once again, a small group of people make a lot of money and maybe the merchants in Garberville are able to get by now because you've got these kind of high rollers coming in. Yeah, and, and buying things yeah. and RVs oh,
0: yeah. and whatever else, yeah. Yeah. But then as soon as the market flops, like it's been doing recently, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
3: so I think you have to go back really to a time. Oh before 1850 before uh, The whites got here and what you had were Indian communities and Indian Economies, Mm -hmm. you know, they didn't you know have stocks and bonds anything like that But they had their own sense of what was valuable what the resources were like how you could use those resources when you needed them, but not over Extend yourself by using too much of the resource. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we had generations and generations, centuries of Indian life up here where there is a balance of the use of the resources, so that even by the time the whites came in 1850, uh, you know the rivers were just teeming with salmon. You know the woods were still there. Uh, the Indians had they used redwood. They made houses out of redwood, but they didn't cut down entire forests of it and yeah. ship it out of the and area. And it would have
0: seemed obscene to do for them to do so. I mean, they couldn't yeah. even probably conceive of that as an idea. Yeah. Like, why would that? Why would anyone want to do that? Yeah. You know, uh, it just. I mean, fundamentally, we have to. I think at some point, at least, entertain a, a rethinking of what are we about are we about giving as many people as we as that can possibly be helped an opportunity long term or are we about giving a few guys an opportunity to come in and get really rich yeah and then go off and buy their you know european yeah. vacation houses and yeah. what's what's more of value you know yeah, yeah. and i mean i'm not i'm not anti-capitalist like i don't i mean if someone wants to work hard and they can succeed at something and they can make a lot of money i have no problem with that mm-hmm. but it's like to for a b- a small group of people to get rich really quick. That wealth is coming from somewhere, yeah. and you're pulling it out of a s- the system somehow. Right. And so there is going to be a dearth, mm-hmm. you know, in the future where that wealth came from, even if you can't see it yet. You yeah. know.
3: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and you know, I- it's a big problem. I think when you have some people that want a lot more than what they need. Yeah. And if you go back, like with the the, the native population here, uh, they were for the most part satisfied with and believed in valuing what they needed, but not taking more than they needed. And in that way, they were able to have a sustained internal economy, and uh, by economy, I mean use of resources, uh, but in a way that would not damage the overall resource permanently like we you know sometimes see yep. happening now. Yeah. yeah,
0: what's interesting about that too is I think it speaks to the issue we mentioned before, like how you honor the traditions like the, the Hollenbecks represent. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like those people didn't design the system. Yeah. They were just working within it. And within that system, they managed to be courageous and mm-hmm. they managed to uh, ingenious in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and developed craftsmen. Abilities that you know uh, made this area famous far and yeah. wide, and I think yeah. that uh, there's honor in that. Yeah, you know, absent or sort of you know outside of the the degradation that may have occurred in you know the the environment because of the system, I, I don't think you can hold these people responsible for that, and you can still honor right. what they were able to achieve, yeah. um, you know, because they were just trying to get by.
3: Yeah, and they were put in an unequal position. I mean, they, uh, for example. Uh, it was virtually impossible for them to unionize up here and to have force as a laboring unit. Uh, A.B. Hammond, who came in early 1900s, uh, was a leader who for 40 years or more made sure that unions could not organize up here. And if some of the other timber owners uh, wanted to offer uh, uh, their workers a better contract or allow them form a union, Hammond would step in and do everything possible to discourage that, And he, uh, uh, not single-handedly, but he was the leader in that movement to keep that sort of thing under control. I saw a picture once uh, I- of uh, part of the labor unrest in the uh, 1930s up here, this is the time when there was the shootout at the Holmes Eureka Mill, mm-hmm. police riot and several workers were killed, but uh, they showed uh, what was going on down at Scotia. Uh, You know this uh, family-run town, and they had their own private police force uh, that was there and they circulated a a Petition or a document where they asked the workers to sign an agreement that they would not go on strike and of course if they didn't sign it the Possibility was they'd just be fired. You looked at these guys. It's 1935 when the Nazis are rising to power in Germany, and the fellas that you see in these uniforms could have just been brown shirts. Yeah. They, they look, they're they're bullies, they're tough guys, they're gonna yeah, intimidate sucks. the workers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you could be as heroic as you want out in the woods and risk your life, but if you're now trying to uh, get better pay do something like that, uh, it's totally stacked against you, and you're gonna have to run up against uh, the physical intimidation of uh, these kind of goon squads, but also the intimidation of losing your job and you know not being able to have a union to support you.
0: Yeah, that's a it's a, it's a fascinating period of history and just how all that developed. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about before we stu- you know we're done with this conversation is that I've seen a lot of pictures or paintings of Eureka, like when Eureka first got established, you know, yeah. um, and the redwoods were right at down to the water. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, so the mills that were set up, like you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. um, the various mills that were on the waterfront, they basically consumed the trees back for yeah. what became Eureka, is that right? And then mm-hmm. eventually, like, just out, further out and out?
3: Yeah. yeah, well, see, you know, you had a problem right at the start of these huge trees, and you could them down somewhat, but they're huge, uh, logs then, uh, how do you get them to the mill? And at first, you know, they could cut, like you said, they could uh, start pretty near the bay shore and work their way back in Eureka, although it wasn't all redwood, there were spruce and other trees there, mm-hmm. but they could uh, cut and then just haul them to a mill that was right on the bay. Mm-hmm. And it became really important to have the mill just on the bay because as they got farther away, uh, they couldn't, they didn't have logging railroads at first. were they c- the too big, the yeah,
0: trees were yeah. massive. And yeah.
3: so they'd have to bring the logs across the bay by water wow. they would for example they would log up in elk river mm-hmm. down the sou- uh, south end of uh, part way down toward the south end of humboldt bay and they'd have a log drive every year they'd yard up the logs and put them in the middle of the river at low water. Then they'd wait till the first big storm came and ah. uh, then the logs could float out into the bay and then they could be towed. They'd, they'd kind of make a raft of them by uh, connecting uh, some logs around uh, the main body of the logs and just have a, a tugboat towed up to one of the mills. And so you look at like the Doldmere Carson mill. Well, they just uh, kind of Bounded off part of the bay and that was their log dump and they yeah. go somewhere else like down at the Bayside mill down and back of Costco they had the same sort of thing in the Holmes Eureka mill, which was uh, Down a little farther in back of uh, the Bayshore mall uh, Each of them just used the bay to store their logs but for a long time the logs were being hauled in by water and it wasn't until the railroad system really started functioning, and now you're talking about 1880s, 1890s, that they could get them anywhere else. So you got this mill; uh, it's right down by the bay. They haul the logs in and have a little log dump right there next to the bay. Then they uh, manage to move the log and pull it up into the mill. They cut the log into lumber. It comes out the other side of the mill, and where does it go? It goes onto a dock that's right at the bay. Mm-hmm. And then what can happen? ships that want to transport it, just sail up in the early days or use steam power and anchor right there next to the bay and they load it right there. And so they've got input and output both coming by the bay yeah. and uh, they're all set up for the most efficient process imaginable.
0: Wow. Yeah.
3: So different from yeah. you know what happened later.
0: But well, yeah. And it's just so different than what's going on with the bay now. I mean, it's basically yeah. a ghost town. Yeah. You know, we have the... the yeah. Minor projects, some industrial shipping, but not a whole lot, yeah. and uh,
3: yeah. Yeah, and they had you know if, if you look back, they had uh, this big Arcata wharf that they 've talked about, yeah, yeah. I 've seen pictures of that the went a couple Stormhouse, of miles yeah, right from yeah yeah, it yeah. yeah. yeah, went a couple of miles out in the bay because when they went out that far, there was a channel, you know, and there was a second wharf that most people don't know about, but it came over from the bayside area, mm. and they were uh, logging up in Jacoby Creek and up by Sunny Bray. And they had shingle mills, and they took them down onto this wharf. They called it the shingle wharf, and they would have four million shingles on the wharf, waiting for ships to come and take them away. Wow. And You know, it just you don't even have a clue about it anymore. But th- these were major features, you know, of the industry at the time, and they were very visible, and it was a very active place. You know, going. I on. mean,
0: you don't, is, is there any existing photographs from like up on Fickle Hill that looks down upon? The Arcata or Eureka Bay area from those times that like shows just not how different it is. It or
3: you know, not not as good as what we'd hope. You know, there's yeah. some taken kind of down at ground level where you can see uh, the shingle wharf or the Arcata wharf, and it's pretty impressive because tied up next to the wharf are big ocean-going ships. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these things are big, yeah. and that's because uh, they. Ran the wharfs out far enough that they could get to a deep water channel, mm-hmm. and you know then you'd have these uh, fairly large size uh, steam schooners come in and take these products away, and so the bay was you know it wasn't just about fishing boats using it and coming in, but it was so it was much everything yeah. yeah 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 bringing in supplies and then taking out lumber primarily, but you know other products that came from this area
0: too yeah and so it's like The highway and then the railroad um, supplanted that mode of travel.
3: Yeah, and once they got the railroad in, then it became uh, a lot uh, uh, easier and uh, more predictable about how they could move goods out of the area. You because they could just take the train down to San Francisco Bay and ship things that way. It, before that, you know, you could use ships to bring things in and out of the bay, but it was problematic. If you had a really stormy week or two, you know, couldn't do it, uh, you... Uh, had problems in the early days of safety uh, coming in and out of the bay before they put in the crossing jetties. The bar. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, crossing the bar.
3: I mean, that was a real thing. Yeah, <laughs> you totally. Know? It, yeah, and you know we don't think about that today, but yeah. you know crossing the bar could be a life-threatening experience.
0: Yeah. yeah, well that's fascinating. Is there anything else you wanted to add about what uh, we listened to with Eric and Viviana?
3: Well, you know, I uh, I think uh, one thing that uh, important is uh, the work that they do with young people mm-hmm. and the way that uh, they're able to transmit not just skills but the love of a skill uh, that uh, these younger people can embrace and it's something that's very hard to get just in a standard education you know you go to a high school and you read a textbook maybe you play on the football team do something like that but to actually acquire a skill where you could like do fancy mill work, or you could do things with your hands, even today, you know, in this modern age, mm-hmm. and create things that are actually works of art. Yeah, And that these be- might be people who would never really do well in a regular school situation, but when they can do stuff with their hands and they can use their eyes and heads together, mm-hmm. you know, it's just tremendous. Yeah. And, you know, to have people like the Hollenbecks who have those skills and have the rapport with the young people, mm-hmm. you know, I think is, it's just, Tremendous, and if we had more of that, we'd be much better off.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I think that, like, they have, it's again, it's like you mentioned, the transmission of passion and information from a generation that's gone by and into this future generation, and reemphasizing the value of a different kind of intellect and a different kind of work. It's like we've gotten so used to focusing on academic research and going to college, and we've really gotten away from like, you know, people wanting to go to trade schools or people, and that's a totally valuable and viable path. Yeah, And I think the more that we can recognize that and appreciate it and highlight people like Eric and Viviana who are yeah. who have made a life and career out of it, yeah, you know, the better, we'll, more rounded we'll be.
3: It is, yeah, and, and it's a perfect place up here, you know, where you have all of these uh, remaining uh, Victorian houses that had, you know, fancy scroll work done uh, that require, if you want to, um, refurbish a Victorian house, for example. Who is going to mill up the materials yeah. that would replicate what was there to begin with? Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. and, and you can capture a part of the past by doing that. You can pick out some of the best features of things that happened in the past, like the wonderful craftsmanship of a Victorian home made out of Redwood, and you can keep that tradition alive. And I yeah. think that's really terrific.
0: Yeah, and carry it into the future. Yeah. And it's i mean for the victorian seaport that's we we need yeah. that right yeah. I mean, there's demand for it yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah there is and i think that's part of the future of humboldt county and places like that it's not going to be just grinding out products that are taken out of the area but it's going to be uh, a place where people will come to see the history and the beauty of the area that's still present, it's gonna be an attraction because this is a special place up here. You, know, you you have the redwood forest, you have the redwood houses, you have things that don't exist anywhere else and that there's been enough of those things preserved that people who wanna connect with that type of beauty and that sense of the past can do it. I, I think you know we're gonna see a continued development of tourism and of uh, attracting people even to l- come up here and live, who want those sorts of things. Especially as other places get more crowded, get hotter, and you know, we see the effects of climate change. And You know, right here is still kind of an island, and I think uh, it's a much safer space for people to go to.
0: Yeah, excellent, Jerry. Thank you so much, man. That's it for our third episode of Crossing the Bar. Next time, we'll head west to Petroleum and sit down with the longtime area geologists who's plied multiple trades and lived several lives in the wilds of Humboldt County. Until then, this has been a proud production of Redwood Empire Public Television. Thanks for listening.